0: Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we have set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, and I'm an MD and a Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and consulting.
1: And my name is Alex. I am an MD pursuing an Oxford computer science PhD and a Harvard MBA, and I'm interested in healthcare investing and innovation.
0: Today is an installment of our Physician Banker series. We will be talking to Dr. Alex Lomax, who is an investment banker at Lazard. So I want to ask Alex, my co-host. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about investment banking before our guest comes on?
1: Sure thing. So usually investment banks are financial institutions that broadly speaking, act as intermediaries between those seeking capital and those with capital. And this usually takes the form of providing financial advice during complex financial transactions to corporations, governments, institutions, and individuals on strategic matters and matters that relate to M&A, restructuring and other financial matters. There's usually two types of investment banks. So there is banks with balance sheets that focus on providing advice and capital. And there's banks without balance sheets that focus solely on providing really high quality and top tier advice. And those are called independent banks.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Thank you, Alex. So our guest, Alex Lomax, is a Vice President of Healthcare Financial Advisory at Lazard. Lazard, one of the world's preeminent financial advisory and asset management firms, actually operates across 26 countries with origins dating back to 1848. The advisory side of the firm provides advice on mergers and acquisitions, strategic matters, restructuring and capital structure, capital raising, and corporate finance to corporations, partnerships, institutions, governments, and individuals. Lazard has advised on many of the largest deals in the healthcare space, such as the acquisition of Aetna by CVS Health, which was a $77 billion deal, the acquisition of Immunomedics by Gilead, which was a $21 billion deal, and the merger of Livongo and Teladoc, which was an $18 billion deal. Before Lazard, Alex was an associate and then vice president of healthcare investment banking at RBC Capital Markets. He started as an investment banking analyst at Peel Hunt.
1: Alex, welcome. We're so excited to have you with us.
2: Great. Thanks, Alex. And, and absolutely, it's great to be on. Thank you very much. It, it's actually a great idea and a great concept that you guys have. And so really happy to be on as a, as we'll come on to. medicines, always feels like a bit of a, a siloed path. And, and people never, at least in England, people never really seem to know how to get out of it if they want to get out of it. So I think this is a great idea and a great, a great series you're running. So happy to be on today.
1: Alex, we are similarly very excited to have you with us. So, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your early years, and how and why you chose to pursue a career in medicine?
2: Sure. So, um, as you probably know, this Alex I'm my vice president in healthcare at Lazard. I have been in the financial services industry just over five years. Before that, I was uh, in, in various healthcare MA roles, which I'm sure we'll come on to. Before that, I was a doctor working in uh, Manchester and London in the UK, background in, in academic science. My early years, what an interesting question. I grew up all around the home counties in the UK, which Alex, I know that you're at the moment in, in the UK. So I'm not sure if you know what the home counties are yet, but uh, it's the surrounding areas around London, originally from Berkshire, but, but spent a, lot, a number of my years with my family, currently based in Kent, which is just south of London. How did I choose a career in medicine? Uh, I don't know. It's a great question. And it's one where I'd, l- I'd love to hear your, your side of these things as well, because for me personally, I kind of fell into medicine. Uh, in the UK, you have to essentially decide your headline path, whether it be science or humanities, et cetera, when you, essentially you're 16 and choosing your GCSEs. And therefore, you basically have to decide that path. But specifically around the likes of medicine or law or any other vocation, that's really the time that you have to decide. So I realized that I like science and maths. I didn't like writing essays. I enjoy working with people. And I didn't like the sound of sitting behind a desk the rest of my life. So the people around me suggested medicine. My parents were utterly thrilled by the prospect. Uh, and I didn't really think about it again and whether or not I really wanted to do it and whether or not I was what I was told was the truth until I was working in hospitals as part of my training, some six, seven, eight years down the line. So I, I really very much fell into it rather than necessarily picked it. But uh, even though I'm not in it anymore and tangentially obviously working in healthcare, I really enjoyed it in terms of the learning process and, and the science side of it and, and, and the way in which you learn within medicine.
1: Thank you for sharing that, Alex. And actually, this idea of falling into medicine is one that we we hear frequently from our guests. So for example, from our previous conversations, it usually revolves around the environment, encouraging the guests to go into medicine. And that was certainly for me. I mean, my dad is a physician, my uncle... As a physician. And so basically, like the environment and the surrounding context is medical. And so that kind of plays a role in you making the decision to go into medicine. So, Alec, you have an eventful ed- education. So, you did medicine, you did a master's in tissue engineering, you've graduated top of class. Can you tell us how is it that your path immediately led you to the financial services industry and investment banking? For our guests, there is usually an aha moment where they make a decision. What was that moment for you if there was a moment? And was clinical medicine always off the table? (laughs) It's
2: a really interesting uh, way of phrasing the question, Alex, because it's the aha moment. It's sounds almost like eureka fantastic whereas um I'm, I'm not sure how it is for everyone else but when I realized I no longer wanted to be a medicine it was a deeply depressing moment because I didn't realize what else I was going to do at the time all I knew is that I wanted out and as the point you made where you kind of fall into it and it's all you've ever known and it feels very siloed it, it can be quite scary actually so the, my aha moment I suppose um I'm not sure how it works in the rest of the globe but in the UK during during my training so I undertook a, what's called an integrated course where. You have an opportunity to take a year out during your medical training. So, I did a five year medical degree in the UK. Three of those years I spent working in hospitals on rotors, nights and uh, and days, et cetera, actually on on rotors. And I had the opportunity in the middle of that, after my fourth year, to take a year out and do a master's, uh, which I did in stem cell research, as you mentioned, tissue engineering. My aha moment came probably halfway through that year, where the master's itself is a slightly less intense year than working in hospitals, as you might expect, and therefore you have time to think. And whilst the science is exceptionally interesting in a number of these uh, lab-based arenas, uh, the day-to-day of being the, the executor of, of the methodology of the testing or, or whatever it may be that you're studying can essentially result in 12 hours of petting fluids from one vessel into another. And it was during one of those days in a windowless room that I realized kind of, what am I doing? Why am I here? Where does this fit into the larger plan? Because... As I mentioned in, in your first question, I hadn't really thought about how I'd got to where I'd gotten to. I'd had my head down medicine's super intense, it's difficult, it's interesting, etc. So really having the time to take a step back and, and reflect for the first time how I was going about my, my career was kind of my aha moment, where I realized I wasn't really enjoying the day-to-day of working in hospitals. And, and I think that the career or the sort of dream I had been sold at various stages of, of moving into medicine was maybe not the reality, which is the same, I assume, for everything that, that people try to push you towards. No one, unless you have a real understanding or expectation of it. And maybe unlike you, Alec, I don't have medics in my family. It was the fact that I had the opportunity to go into it and it was my family wanted me to go into it because it was the I would I would be the first and my family to have done it. And actually my cousin, who's basically my age, went into it at the same time and actually is still a doctor actually working in Cardiff in in Wales. So that's when my my aha moment came. That I thought, you know what, maybe this isn't for me, and maybe I should think about what else I can do. I didn't just immediately uh, move away from clinical practice. I did really enjoy it. I'd committed a lot of time to it. And therefore, I looked into working in the US and Canada. I don't speak any other languages. I, I at times, struggle with English as it is. So I knew I was kind of penned in by by language. So I I took part of my USMLEs. I, luckily, have family who live in the US and and looked into it from that that perspective, spent some time at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. But I really found that I just didn't really enjoy the the day day to day, uh, and therefore I I started to look further afield. Really, my path didn't necessarily immediately lead me to financial services. But what I would say is that um, I've been very lucky, and I think it's very important. Maybe we'll come to it later. That you know, you take you know advice. Life is a people-based enterprise, and it's important you build relationships, both mentors and mentees, and, and and you take advice from wherever you can get it. And and luckily, I had a lot of people around me I'd met over the years who I could go back to and ask asked their opinions. And I quickly focused in on financial services writ large. And, and I like the idea of it. And so I kind of threw myself into that and kind of went from there, really. The fact that I've ended up a, you know, pursuing a career in financial advisory as opposed to investing or, or in the corporate landscape is, is more a function of the position I find myself on that pathway today, rather than necessarily you know, a, a complete and well thought through plan.
1: Alex, this is amazing perspective. I really enjoyed learning about your journey. And I think that this idea of starting basically the path on medical school, medical residency, and being like 100% focused, that those are the steps that you have to do. You finish medical school, you do residency, and then you practice is something that also comes up in our conversations. And when usually our previous guests get exposure to the wider system, this is where basically they get the realization that there is a lot of opportunities outside. And basically, one of the things that we are hoping actually like, to achieve through physicians of the beaten path is highlighting that these opportunities exist uh, for medical doctors outside the immediate track. Uh, that has been built over the last decade. Thank you so much for sharing your journey on that. So I guess, Alec, in your short career, you've been able to achieve a lot of inspiring things, and you're currently a vice president of healthcare financial advisory at Lazard, and that's quite remarkable. So can you tell our audience a little bit about the nature of the work that you do at Lazard and whether you've come across many medical doctors in the financial services sector, be it on the sell side or the buy side?
2: Absolutely, more than happy to. And I think one final point on the previous question actually is: uh, my best aha moment was actually post-fact when once I'd made the jump and I found myself in a seat having having grafted my way there, which we'll come on to later. After about four weeks, I sat down at the end of a really long day, and I knew I'd made the right decision. So I almost had that post-fact aha moment. In terms of the nature of my, my work, what we do at uh, Healthcare Financial Advisory at Lazard, we essentially advise healthcare companies on buying and selling other companies, as well as making strategic decisions around their assets, operations, and balance sheets. We really are fundamentally strategic advisors to companies and to financial investors. Pr- the primary focus of the client base that we have at Lazard, you know, given the heritage of the business, is really around corporates, especially the large cap pharma players. But my personally, through the other jobs I've had at uh, previous firms, I've also spent a significant amount of time working with financial sponsors. And what I mean by that is, Know anyone across the across the investment decision-making process? So private equity, venture capital, long-term capital, at times hedge funds, depending upon their specific applications and, and strategies. Practically, however, that that means working directly with management and boards, business development teams, maybe specific business units of companies, or the relevant financial professionals. Think through s- strategies around maybe specific assets, or specific timelines, or specific uses of capital, or capital allocation policies really just being there for your clients to think through anything with respect to corporate importance, uh, especially around uh, corporate finance or or, or the use um, of capital itself. The nature of the work is also, uh, as you can imagine by all of that and across the different stakeholders as well as the different people you may speak to and the different types of, of work that may arise, the work is incredibly intense, intellectually challenging, it's hugely varied. You work as part of a team, you can impact that team. You know, a number of these things I mentioned are the reasons why I first got into medicine, because I wanted these sort of abstract ideas that that you that I was told medicine was the place to get them, where you work at, with like-minded people who are int- incredibly intelligent. And, and I just never considered that beyond the, the the 10 jobs that was supposedly in the job book, you know, the vocations, whether it be law or, or et cetera, that, that financial services was going to be able to offer this. But it, it fundamentally is that healthcare itself is a, is a huge uh, space. So invariably, you find yourself working in more one area than others. So, for me personally, I've spent more of my time in pharma, med tech, outsourcing, whether it be you know the, the advent of digital health or commercialization services or or pharma outsourcing around uh, manufacturing or, or research services. There's there's lots of, and lots of different sub niches within the type of work we do writ large across the industry, but but at, at healthcare financial advisory at Lazard, we are really helping corporates think through their strategy and in, in whatever context or capacity is is most helpful to them, really. And sometimes that means high-level thinking, thought pieces around specific areas or technologies, treatment modalities, whether it's next-generation vaccines or the advent of digital health, all the way through to uh, executing transactions on behalf of our clients and and, and helping them get through the nitty-gritty of the corporate finance and, and the negotiation of contracts regarding purchasing or selling businesses. In terms of the second part of your question around uh, have we come across, have I come across m- many medical doctors? I think the answer is absolutely yes, and I was completely shocked for that to have been the case. Really, when when I moved out of medicine, we all spoke about it a lot. There's a lot of trainee doctors or, or physicians out there who are disgruntled around the careers they found themselves in, and, and and I think part of that is just not knowing what else is out there and feeling that you don't have another option. And I think that that, that creates problems itself. But but I out of the people I knew, I, I was really the only one who took the plunge. And therefore, having take, taken the plunge in quite a lonely manner, to then found so many medics, doctors, or generally healthcare professionals within the financial industry, services industry, I was, was really great and, and something I wish I knew beforehand. So this is one of the reasons why I'm, you know, this podcast you, you're doing is so fantastic. Uh, is because I just didn't realize that there were people out there either having already made the jump or were wanting to and therefore there was potentially people who could who could help support you through that. Um specifically there's a number of doctors in our global healthcare Lazar team currently, both in London, in San Francisco, in New York as well, but also across the entire investment industry, whether it be private equity, a number of the largest healthcare teams globally in, in private equity are led by ex-doctors. Same in venture capital, obviously given you know the the stage within of businesses within which they invest, you, the understanding of the science is almost more important at, at that level. And then also within corporates themselves, you see uh, across a, re- a wide range of healthcare subsectors, you see a, ho- a huge number of of medics or scientists as well. So, yes, and I was very surprised how many. It's probably the short answer to uh, to your question.
1: Alex, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I remember when I first arrived to the UK, I attended some dinner that was focused on investment banking, and one of the people told me that I think one of the CEOs of Goldman Sachs or like one of the top executives was a medical doctor. And the first thought that I have was like, how can that be? <laughs> and I was really shocked. So yeah, absolutely. I had the same reaction. And Alex, this brings me to the next question, uh, which is around uh, what transferable skills do you think medicine gives you that you can apply in the financial services and investment sectors. I remember in one of our conversations with Mark Shankar, who worked at Goldman Sachs and is currently with Summit Partners, he gave us the example of him being in the emergency department and having to manage multiple patients, so having multiple streams of work happening at the same time. And that is certainly something that I saw during my summer with Lazard, where you're working on multiple projects and you have to keep track of everything. So I was wondering, from your perspective, uh, how has your medical education and training contributed to your success in your work? And what were the most important factors and skills that you felt were transferable?
2: I love that analogy, by the way. Bringing triage skills to investment banking is something that holds you in a in good stead for the, the diversity and balancing of workloads that you actually see across investment banking. It's, uh, it's actually a fantastic analogy. To your question, though, I, I think there was actually a huge amount of transferable skills. I mean, I didn't think there were when I made the move. Obviously, what you think you're learning in medicine is the fundamentals of how the body works, how to treat patients, formulary, et cetera. And whilst that is absolutely true, what you also learn in absolute spades is how to work as a team, how to perform in a changing and varied high-pressure environment, how to apply fact-based scientific process and rigor to an entirely human and balanced decision-making process. I mean, how to convey information and communicate your expertise both internally, which is your team, and externally to patients, fundamentals of self-reflection and critical appraisal, the importance of these and, and how to go about undertaking them individually but also collectively in a manner that promotes openness Accountability, responsibility, but also personal and professional growth for both you and your team. In medicine, you really go to the heart of decision making in order to benefit future decisions to be made. You've already mentioned the the, the triage capability point, but I think an extension of that is being able to balance, prioritize, and execute upon multiple work streams on a continuous on a continuous basis is 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 really important. It's it means absolutely absolutely at the core of of of, of the day-to-day workings of, of, of investment banking. So I think, that you know, it's a, a bunch of different things I've mentioned, but I think these are all things that medicine teaches you over the course of your education, training, and residency. I mean, it's a subconscious education. It's one I didn't know I was receiving at the time, but one that's highly valuable and transferable into any job you may be doing. I think within the industry or, or beyond, um, in the case of financial services, or even beyond that. I mean, it, it's essentially a good education and skill set for life, if we're being honest. Beyond that, I suppose having having an an experience in an environment that is challenging, varied, and unpredictable, where on a daily basis you're expected to step up, adapt, persevere, work within your team to be uh, to achieve a, an important common goal that has a material human impact where mistakes carry a cost, I think can be nothing but a positive for both your skill set and capability moving forward, but also the application of these skill sets. Across any any future job or or enterprise in your life, I mean, it, yes, these are all, all all great to be applied in investment banking. But as I mentioned, you know, you could apply these in any areas of your life. To your point on on which of the skill sets do I think are most important, um, it's, it's hard, right? I mean, b- both jobs are highly rewarding. They can be challenging from both an intellectual and and capability standpoint. I, and I mean, that in, a, in a positive way, and I think the medicine sets you up up well for that. I mean, I enjoy the challenge of our of the job we do here as strategic financial advisors. It's variable. Uh, it's got a human basis combined with scientific and intellectual and, and intellectual um, applications. But it comes down to both of the, both of these areas have a really high uh, and steep learning curve, and I think therefore um, a strong work ethic and and and. and perseverance really pay off, I think, I think in both sides. And, I, that, and that's one of the reasons I think medics are, are very well suited to, to, um, to financial services but, but in general.
1: Alex, this is amazing perspective. Thank you so much for sharing. I guess now I'm going to hand over to my co-host, Shad. So Shad, over to you.
0: Thank you so much, Alex. And Alex, this has been such an interesting and illuminating conversation. And I think one of the last points you made is that willingness to work really hard. I had a friend uh, from college who ended up doing an MD, MBA uh, in medical school, but didn't do residency. And some people thought that he took the easy way out. But in reality, he was working just as hard as any of us, but just in a different direction. The general tone that I got when I spoke with him is that no matter what you do, if you want to succeed at the highest level, you just have to work incredibly hard, whether you work in medicine, investment banking, private equity, entrepreneurship, whatever it is. So that really resonated with me. So switching gears here a little bit, Alex, you're knee deep in investment banking, where financial modeling and general business acumen are obviously very important. And many of our guests so far have had MBAs, which is a pretty common feature amongst business professionals, especially here in the United States. So I'm curious, did you ever consider pursuing an MBA? And why didn't you actually enter an MBA program? And where were you able to develop the business acumen and technical skills that you're using every day now at Lazard?
2: So I think it's a really good question. I think it, first and foremost, I think it's it, it's quite a geographic disparity, as you mentioned. It, it, like, there's lots and lots of MBAs in, in the US system, especially within financial services, where the structure of the system is built to, to have you know the MBA class come in and, and there's an exodus of people below them who then go off and do business school. It's much less common in terms of ingrained into the fundamentals of how the hierarchy of the system works in, in Europe or in especially within the UK. First and foremost, whilst I've, I absolutely did consider it, and I can come onto that in a second, uh, it, it is very much less in, as you meant, as you kind of alluded to, much less ingrained into the society, the, the the structure of how the workforce behaves essentially within Europe. When I was thinking about making my move, I did consider how calling a spade a spade, how do I prove to people that I actually want to do this? Especially in the context of having spent a lot, you know, a lot of time in education and and a lot of time accruing student debt, uh, and so whilst I did consider an MBA, I also considered an, an MSc, uh, which is quite common uh, in Europe, so three years masters in on that side as well. I actually decided to undertake the CFA. I did part one and then part two during my during my final year of medical school. Actually, during whilst I was doing my finals, as I felt like I could do that alongside alongside it as well as. Uh, not have to spend more time not in the new career that I I kind of decided I wanted to do. It was obviously a calculated risk. Um, I I have no doubt that I would have learned more, definitely much more that was applicable to the job, uh, doing an MBA or even doing an MSc. But at that time, you don't know what you don't know. and, And I did the CFA and realized that actually, whilst it's very helpful in certain areas, it wasn't actually that applicable to what I currently do. I was able to build the business acumen. I mean, I really think there's so much to be said about learning on, on the job, and I've been very lucky in the roles I've had that the my seniors and my mentors and even my, you know, the juniors who've worked alongside me or as, as my direct seniors have been very, really good at allowing me to, to learn and, and develop those skills and, and build them, you know, almost organically. Obviously, you do, you do get training through the career you, you get analyst training you get associate training you get vp training there's ad hoc training all the time there's lots of opportunities to do these sorts of things if you need to and if there are areas that I are, get identified in your career that you're less good at uh whether it be you know something like financial modeling or whether it be you know, talking in groups or presenting or or whatever it may be we have a lot of you know people who, who come from a lot of different backgrounds across europe speak lots of different languages and therefore it's not uncommon to have people who who want to go and, and become better english speakers because it's a complicated task to, to explain minutiae of corporate finance, not in your primary language. So I've been very lucky that I've been able to learn on the job. But I also think that I've found education in general is very much like learning how to drive a car. You learn how to move the car and therefore you can pass your test. Really, the first time you really learn anything is when you're on your own with no instructor pulling onto the motorway or going around a roundabouts, which we have a lot of them in the UK. That's when you really learn what you're doing because it's applying the theory in the practical terms. And that's really the most important side of it. So I've been very lucky to learn on the job, very lucky with the training I've received, and I'm probably very lucky with the people who've allowed me to make my mistakes along the way and, and learn from them. And to be clear, there is no perfect career background. I would really think about it in traditional and non-traditional backgrounds. You know, neither is, in at least my own opinion, and I may be particularly biased here, categorically more important than the other. I think there's huge value in being part of a team whereby you can pull expertise from a variety of sources. This, this is a fundamental underpinning of high quality and high impact advice to your clients. But, and also, you know, creating the best skill set within the team, having that diversity of thought process and that variety and niche expertise really can be key.
0: Uh, Alex, I absolutely love that analogy. And and I just think it's very impressive that uh, you're sort of knee deep in a very technical world without an MBA. And and it just goes to show the power of learning on the job, as you mentioned, and and what you can actually do when you have to do something. One of my my neighbor here at HBS, he's knee deep in the financial uh, financial world. He was in private equity, and now he's working at a hedge fund. And he's been thinking about, you know, when I asked him, you know, at five years old, what, what were you doing? And he was telling me he was reading Investopedia articles online when he was like five or six years old. Um, so you're competing with people who've been thinking about finance since they were little. But the fact that you've been able to move up to such a high degree at a place like Lazard really speaks to the power of just dedication and hard work. Uh, and and that's something that I think audience can really take take a lot from. So I appreciate you sharing that. Shad, maybe to- just not on, on that sure. point, if
2: you don't mind me. Sorry, apologies for cutting across you. I just, I think it's just a good point because it's, it's a team. It's a team job, right? It's, it's a team enterprise, and and everyone has their, the things they're good at, and the things that they're less good at, and so therefore it's. You know, it's know know your space and know know what your your value is, and and try and focus on your your weaknesses, but also do focus on your strengths as well. You know, coming from a healthcare background, being able to sit in a room and speak to the CSO or financial investor who's been investing in the space for thirty years because you understand the words and you understand the the pathways and you can speak to them at their level is is an exceptionally important facet. Yes, it's obviously incredibly important that you know your corporate finance, but I tell you what. One of the most attractive things about the job, generally, I think, in investment banking is the, the dynamic change of the job over the course of your career. It's incredibly important to have all of these things locked down very early on in your career. But as you progress and you become more senior, it's actually very important you're able to apply those and speak to seniors and speak to senior people at at you know at, at clients and be able to discuss with them you know, these more high level, but also uh, the, the things that are built upon those foundations, but are not necessarily solely about... You know, building financial models anymore. So there's a lot to be said about the, the diversity of the career, but it's also a team job whereby don't just worry if, you know, to your listeners. you know, If you don't have the perfect background, don't, don't worry about that. You know, Focus on the things you don't know and focus on the things you're good at and, and persevere.
0: Yeah, Alex, I absolutely love that point. And I'm so glad you made it because I interned at BCG in consulting over the summer here in Boston. And BCG North America has about 60 docs right now. And and I talked to someone, one of the senior partners at BCG and, and asked him, you know, why does BCG hire so many doctors? And the sense I got was they don't hire doctors for the sake of hiring doctors. They hire doctors because physicians bring a different perspective that sort of the general peer MBA consultants can't bring. And I think being confident and being able to leverage your background, your knowledge, your, your set is very important. I think I was able to do that over the summer. So that resonates a lot with me as well. Sort of moving on to what advice we can give to audience. You've been, as we mentioned, in the healthcare financial uh, advisory role for a while now, serving as VP at both RBC Capital and Lazard. For docs who are looking to venture off the traditional path, how should they think about sort of finding interesting opportunities like you clearly have? And how do you think about evaluating These opportunities to see if they're worth pursuing or not
2: to your story as i said i I don't think there is a perfect background but having diversity of thought uh, can be a real asset in the industry and and you can build that coming from any background to your question though so i mean first and foremost just start i remember i've been there i know it's scary it's a sea of unknown but without wanting to, to sound too cheesy on the matter you know it is also a sea of opportunity You've got to get out there, ask questions, be inquisitive, speak to people, and really just go after go after the you know the change that you want in your life. It's it's an exploration process. You can't know all the answers heading in, and therefore, as I say, the the key thing is to start. And something I wish I knew when I started making the the the, the journey in was was that the financial services industry is open. It's it's an exciting job, and my experience is that people. Of people and institutions is that they're highly receptive um, to people joining from outside of the industry. They're highly welcoming. Um, there's a lot of excitement to bring in industry. In, sorry, there's a lot of excitement to bring in interesting and talented people. And fundamentally, just remember that the transition can be made. And I think how do you evaluate these opportunities? I think it's really hard to nail that one down, right? But I think it's important to find people you trust. And what I found is that people want to help. You know, everyone is. So much nicer than I ever thought people were going to be, both, you know, within medicine, but also within within financial services. I think, I think financial services in general, by the general public, gets a really bad reputation on a people level, which I think is quite generally unfounded based upon my experience. Most people are exceptionally eager and open to help and to helping. And therefore, ask for advice. Talk it through. Have confidence in your own ability to critically appraise things and, and think about what it is that you want. Nothing's going to be perfect and run towards something and don't run away from something as well. I mean, yes, I was clearly running away from it because I wasn't enjoying it at the time, but don't just go to anything, you know, because otherwise you're going to jump from one thing you don't like probably to something else you're not going to like. So do take the time, do ask questions, be inquisitive, speak to people. And I found that actually that sounds very simple, but it but it's really just about starting and seeing where it takes you and put the time in and, and really just take opportunities that you think sound interesting. I do not have a linear route to where I am today. I've worked across ECM, DCM, healthcare, full service bank, Solian strategic advisory. I've done a whole load of different things. And I don't know where I'm going to end up, but you know, it's about it's about the journey and not just about the destination. And and I think worrying too much about all of those things is is a really quick way to burning out.
0: I think Alex, your point about it being the journey and, and not necessarily the destination is very well taken. And it's something that a lot of people in medicine could learn to hear, just because it's such a hyper-focused, narrowly focused career path. People go to medical school to go to residency. They go to residency to go to fellowship. Then they go to fellowship to eventually practice. And sometimes you lose sight of the journey. People always tell other people who've left after a couple of years of residency or left to clinical medicine, you never got the payoff. But I think the payoff exists in the journey and not necessarily always at that end. So I appreciate you, uh, you mentioning that point. The other point you mentioned, which I thought was very interesting is about the notion of uncertainty. You're right. Nothing will ever be perfect. You can talk to as many people as you want and you should, you should get different types of perspectives, but it's hard and it's challenging to always get to hundred percent certainty. And at some point you have to, when you get to 80% or 90% certainty, you have to make that jump. I think that resonates as well. And and one of our previous guests, Tinashe Chanduka, also mentioned uh, something along those lines. Moving towards sort of a high-level question, healthcare is an area, as we know, of massive transformation right now with foundational technologies like machine learning, AI, changing the landscape significantly. What's your high-level view on the industry in, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years? And how does investment banking and the financial advisory, how do they play a role in facilitating that transformation in the healthcare
2: ecosystem? Wow, that's a great It's a great question. It doesn't really have a correct answer, which I suppose I should be happy about. But um, look, there's no doubt that there's change being undertaken in all industries. And the, and the change is huge, and, and it's accelerating in an exponential type way. This is categorically true within healthcare. We're seeing a whole degree of different interacting trends and, and technologies coming through. You've spoken about machine learning and AI, and, and those have so many cross-applicable Impacts areas really, you know. Alex and I have been been looking into that, you know, at Lazard um, specifically. But I think there's also a whole bunch of other sort of transformational, foundational technologies, not just technologies, but themes coming through around the consumerization of healthcare, the the expansion of the middle classes. There's there's a whole bunch of trends that are going to dramatically change the healthcare space over the next 10 to 15 years, and also that you know the adjacent spaces that act upon them. I think what we'll see is we'll see a decentralization of research. I think you'll see you see already we're around the virtual um, clinical trials. You can see it around the shift from reactive disease control or, or treatment to, to preventative measures, you know, as we get better diagnostics. And those diagnostics are able to be undertaken in, in a different lo- timing loci whether it be wearables or or other technologies that allow you to get better data sets. And those data sets are therefore able to be used to create more specific diagnostics, whether it be through therapeutics or digital, and therefore you get hyper-specialized treatments that are going to be able to improve outcomes. But I think those diagnostics will also improve the ability for us to get ahead of disease and therefore prevent, or at least start to prevent uh, a number of these problems that that become almost death sentences from the start. So I think there's, there's huge change to come. I think there's a massive disruption on the status quo in terms of corporates that exist today. Just given the acceleration of these technologies and, and the impact these technologies could have, I think you'll see a complete shakeup of of the who's who in healthcare. I think you're seeing that today across a number of different areas. I mean, the, the things you see in the papers around Amazon Alphabetics et al. and the non-traditional healthcare players and what they're bringing to the table. But also, what uh, there's a structural space for challenger players now who are who are highly innovative, nimble business models, that are really, you know, shaking things up, and you can see that specifically within pharma, where you've got you've got a number of biotechs who've really matured for the first time into true large cap pharma players. That hasn't happened really before. I mean, the likes sort of the Gilead and Amgen, some of these players that you know, were basically biotechs and have really gone out there and, and stamped their mark and and used their technologies to be able to transform themselves into true pharma players. So. It's a bit of a rambling answer to the first part of your question, but I think that there is fundamental change coming, and I'm not sure exactly where it will end up, but I think you'll see a complete change of of how we provide care to individuals, the locations within which we provide that care, how that care is delivered, and hopefully the quality of the care that is delivered. Because I think there's a lot of stress on a lot of healthcare systems. We've seen this during the pandemic, where uh, in order to deal with the pandemic at the moment, you know, especially within the UK, a lot of... There's a backlog of massive amounts of elective procedures, but also diagnostics. Oncology just hasn't been really looked after in the last 18 months because everything has been concerned about COVID-19, maybe correctly, but, but there's going to be an unwind here where people have not been having their chemo, et cetera. So if we're able to, to have a healthcare system, which I think we'll get to given the advent of some of these technologies, whereby we don't need to place so much pressure on the primary healthcare system, the, the, health, the hospitals, because of the way in which we're delivering care. I think that's going to be hugely important in terms of base level of, of health for, for society. How does health, investment banking financial advisory play a role? These are previously unconnected spaces. I, I think one of the things that investment banking and, and advisory can do is really bring these, these different groups of people together. Yes, the world is, is terribly well connected today, but I think it's still, you know, across some of the, the bridge, these gaps across some of these technologies in terms of people or in terms of geography or in terms of just direct access I think that's fundamentally what good financial advisory does anyway you provide strategic advice and help people understand what's coming up or what might be coming up and and how they should play and what they should do and and how they might be best suited to play a positive role in in, in that and then helping them enact that whether it be through connecting them with the right people or or helping them go through the nitty-gritty of actually using capital in these spaces and and integrating businesses.
0: Alex, thank you so much for that answer. And there's so much to unpack there. I'll just sort of hone in on on one thing that you mentioned, and that's the notion of decentralization, not just in clinical research, but also in how care is actually delivered. You know, I'm thinking about remote patient monitoring industry and and how that's undergoing a huge transformation right now. That's mostly to do with monitoring chronic diseases like diabetes, weight, hypertension, heart failure, and things like that. But in the next 20, 30 years, you could see that shift to acute care as more and more people are being pulled away from hospitals and and even acute care that we wouldn't think of being delivered outside of the hospital is actually being delivered outside of the hospital. So the notion of decentralization is something that I I think a lot about. And I think uh, it's one of the many things that's happening in healthcare right now. So thanks for sharing that. I think almost finishing up here, uh, you mentioned your mentors multiple times and how important it is to be able to go get various perspectives when you're making a big life decision. Can you just briefly tell us, you know, who are the biggest role models and, and inspirations and mentors in your life? And have you thought about sort of following their path or do you hope to carve out your own? So
2: I'm going to be either terribly boring or terribly cliched here and just say, because everything you've just said is completely true. You know, there are lots of people in my life where, who I am able to call upon either within my current career path or or adjacencies who, who I can talk through on a, on a sort of a practical level around the issues that I may be having or the other way around where I do that for other people as well but for me personally my biggest role models are and have always been my parents you know they taught me the value of money they taught me the importance of working hard they instilled me with graph from a very young age and these are the best lessons I've ever had in my entire life they taught me the importance of critically appraising information not just you know taking what you're told and and, and accepting it and and these things are so fundamentally underpinning to, to everything I think that differentiates me in any way shape or form from my peer set or or just in general has allowed me to actually uh, achieve or, or have the courage to to change, and so you know really it's my parents. You know, they taught me the importance of lifelong learning, continuous self improvement, taking pride in not only what you do but becoming the best version of yourself, right? And that can be whatever it may mean in your own mind. And so I'm, I'm definitely going to go with my parents. Do I want to follow their path or carve out on my own? Uh, I think I think I have to carve out on my own. We have very different you know lives and very different careers. But I think our generation has a great opportunity to live life on a, on a global basis. You know, there are huge considerations and concerns that our parents' generation didn't have, and I won't go into that here. But, but there's great opportunity for us to be able to, to really go after the life that we want to have in a way that probably hasn't been been possible before. Have a fear of not letting life slip by right? and be inspired by you know the desire to live the life that you want to lead, really. And uh, because I've been lucky enough that my parents have given me the foundation to go off and do that. And if you are lucky enough to find yourself in that same position, then one, don't undervalue it Two, tell them thanks every now and again. And, and three, you know, live up to it.
0: Alex, I absolutely love that. And there's a reason why it's a common answer. I think the answer for me is my parents as well. And that was certainly a sort of beautiful tribute and give us a little bit of an insight about your relationship with your parents. I, we're going to wrap up here just in interest of time, but I'd love our listeners to keep being engaged with our guests and the whole uh, community of physicians who are off the beaten path how can our listeners follow the work that you're doing and just hear about some of the interesting things that that you have going on down the line
2: sure look i mean i'm on linkedin look, please you know feel free to reach out to the to yourself or, or to alex and i'd be more than happy to speak to anyone who, who'd like to have a discussion around what they're doing and, and, and what and if i could anyway be of any help to to anyone because don't don't be discouraged when you're being curious about alternative paths i mean it may sound cliche, but the world's never been more connected and accessible, right? And, and the fact that you can find me on LinkedIn, or or we can do this podcast, and you can find a bunch of like-minded people to be able to discuss things is is incredibly important. So uh, that's probably the best way of finding me. I can't say I do many terribly interesting things, but uh, more than welcome to reach out and uh, and uh, happy to have a conversation anytime.
0: Thank you, Alex. That's very generous, and thank you so much for joining us for the podcast.
2: No problem at all. It's great to come on. Thanks both for having me on.
0: That was such a fascinating conversation with Alex. There were so many insights to pull out there, but one I wanted to focus on is the notion of active versus passive decision-making. Alex mentioned pretty frankly a couple of times that he quote, fell into medicine because you know he was intelligent, he liked the sciences. That was a very, very prominent thing to do for a lot of folks. He even said that his parents were ecstatic that he chose medicine, but then he ended up realizing later on that He didn't necessarily love the day-to-day work of being a clinician and even being a researcher. He sort of vividly described that moment where he was just pipetting all the time rather than really being able to use all facets of his sort of intellectual self. The insight there is that uh, even though it's never too late to change paths... Thinking about what you want to do in a very active manner, being very deliberate about the choices you make rather than just, quote unquote, falling into something or falling into a particular career or work stream is very important if you can help it. And It's something that's very challenging to do and easier said than done, but trying to have a good sense of what the actual day-to-day life of... A doctor, an investor, an investment banker, uh, or a private equity associate is like before you actually jump into it can be very, very meaningful. But I did want to mention that sometimes you just don't know until you actually do it. And Alex talked about sort of his having his aha moment post fact. And he talked about that when he started uh, working in investment banking, he quickly realized that that's actually what he wanted to do rather than clinical medicine. And that's okay as well. Sometimes you just don't know until you do it. So over to you, Alex.
1: Thank you, Shah. This is really an amazing uh, takeaway. And I think the takeaway that I want to bring home is um, around one aspect that Alex mentioned, which is focusing on your strengths. And I think this is very applicable in the context of physicians of the beaten path, because if you want to move into an area that is different from healthcare, different from clinical medicine, I mean, there is a lot of skills that a physician may not have. And it can be really intimidating to approach this from the perspective that you don't have these skills and you have to absolutely develop these skills before you even think of going into this line of work, which I think, and from my experience, is not very correct. And Certainly, in investment banking, seeing a an Excel model with like 50 tabs can be really intimidating for a medical doctor. But that doesn't have to be because I think what I liked about the conversation with Alex is that he mentioned the insight of the importance of focusing on one's strength, especially in the context that we are today working in very interdisciplinary teams. So we're moving away from the model where there is usually a person who's a generalist and he knows all the the skills that are required to do the job. And instead, we're moving into an environment where we have uh, teams of people with different skill sets and everyone in the team contributes the skill set or the the expertise in which they have the the biggest strength uh, while learning from everyone else on the skill sets or the the parts of the job uh, where they lack that expertise. And I think this is something that I've certainly seen during my time uh, over the summer at Lazard where... I still have to learn a lot about modeling and about basically financial analysis, but at the same time, I can bring a lot of valuable insights whenever we're evaluating basically biotech companies or evaluating pharma companies or digital health companies. So I, I think that insight is very powerful because it can be really intimidating uh, for a physician who wants to go outside the traditional clinical path. If they look at the empty half of the glass, which is the skills that they lack. Um, And instead, it may be more helpful to actually look at the uh, half full of the glass and focus on the aspects that they can really contribute in a very positive way uh, to whatever... career trajectory they are seeking. So it was really a fascinating conversation with with Alex today and to our listeners out there, join us next episode in which we would have some really interesting stories of medical doctors who have achieved success in different walks of life outside the traditional clinical or research career paths. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at potbp podcast. And to catch our latest podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can email us at physiciansofthebeatenpath@gmail.com at gmail.com or visit our website at potpppodcast.com.